Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. So glad that you chose to be with us today. It is a great day for you to be here. Um, every Sunday, every Wednesday, or Tuesday, or Thursday, or whenever we gather together, it's a great opportunity to get together. Today, we have family with us who many of you haven't met yet. And so, you know, in heaven, you're going to get to meet a ton of brothers and sisters that you've never met, but you're going to carry on like you've been long lost family, because you are. And uh, sometimes on earth we get that opportunity here and at Echo, we're passionate about being and making disciples, but not just here in White Marsh and in Baltimore and in Harford County and otherwise. We're passionate about that all over our country and all over our world. And so something that's important to us is financially supporting and prayerfully supporting and encouraging missionaries. And when back in 2019, if you were with us at that time, you remember we started our mission support journey with two missionaries. And I shared a vision with you that I, I believe that, that one day it would be a goal for us to give a minimum of 10% of our church's annual income back into missions and outreach. And we thought that would take maybe eight to 10 years from where we started, um, Three years later, what I can tell you is because of your giving, and what I mean is your specific giving to missions, what you're giving above and beyond the general tithes and offerings, that you're giving specifically to missions, we've grown from supporting two missionaries a month to 20. 20. And we are, I checked last night, this year so far, we will have, we have already given 13% of our income away to missions and to outreach. And praise God for that. That is... In a day and age when we live in, giving money away to things that don't directly benefit you is not culturally normal. That's something that is a byproduct of having the DNA of our Father in us, because our God is a giver. He gives his first, and he gives his best. And I'm happy to be part of a church family where we model that. So uh, today, I get to introduce to you Robbie. And Sarah. Their kids are back in eKids. Um, they were in our first service, but they very quickly connected with my, <laughs> with my kids, and they took the, the huddle, the team leader huddle, and turned it into uh, back and forth uh, jokes and riddles. So I think they're doing fine. They, they're making f- friends quickly and easily. Um, but this morning, I want you to be able to hear from Robbie and Sarah and find out what we are part of. These are, this is the 20th missionary family that we are supporting. We met in God's place of Panera Bread a few months ago and uh, just were able to get to know their story, to hear a little bit about their ministry, what God has done in their life and what he's doing in their life and what's coming in this next season for them. So I'm gonna turn it over to them right now. Robbie is using his creative gifts to paint a painting that goes along with our sermon for the day. Will you welcome Sarah as she comes to share? Good morning. Good morning. It is a joy and a privilege to be with you today and to be considered one of the 20. Wow, it's it's an honor. Thank you so much for partnering with what the Lord is doing around the world and specifically in the Arabian Peninsula. So we are Robbie and Sarah. Our last name is weird. It's Harris. It's like Harris with a lisp. If you say it that way, you'll get it right every time. And a little bit of our story, we started on this missionary journey in 2010 
uh, in the country of Sudan. And the reason the Lord took us there is we felt um, burdened for not just the lost, because there are lost people everywhere, including in our city here, um, but specifically for the unreached, those that don't have access to the gospel, and specifically for us, um, the Muslim Arab unreached. So we spent a year in Sudan. After that, the Sudanese government kicked out all the missionaries from all the different organizations, and we were redirected to Cairo, Egypt. And it was in Cairo that uh, we had the opportunity to join a movement called Live Dead. And simply put, Live Dead has three objectives. It's to plant the church among the unreached in team. And so we uh, learned Arabic. We got some training there. And after our time in Cairo, we launched out to a place in the Arabian Peninsula that we call Border Town. And Border Town is close to the country of Yemen. It's home to not one unreached people group, but five unreached people groups. And um, for, for a people group to be considered unreached, it means they have limited to no access to the gospel. When we landed, we were uh, surprised to discover that, that although the people were lovely and wonderful, hospitable people, um, they, they didn't even, it didn't seem like there was even a spark of an interest in hearing about the good news of Jesus. We always talk about, you know, praying for good soil to plant the seed of truth in, and it seemed like there was a layer of concrete over the soil of their hearts, and it was discouraging. Um, but what we could see externally is quite different than what the Lord can see and what we knew the Lord was doing. And so I wanted to show you a, a little bit about what Border Town looks like. So we have a little video we want to show you, um, and you'll hear Robbie kind of explain more about that context. The work we do in ministry is a partnership. It's a partnership with the only being who knows how to change hearts. I didn't know how to change my own heart, and I don't really understand how God changed my heart, but he did. Oman is like a vast like patchwork quilt of culture, history, geography. You have mountains, deserts, beautiful turquoise beaches. People are friendly, they're open. Almost without exception, the closest friends someone has here are close family members. So to be regarded as a friend here means being brought near, almost like a family member. That's what we're looking for. The idea is early in every conversation, we're sharing that we're followers of Jesus. We're sharing bits and truths of the gospel, not unlike Jesus who went around telling parables and waiting for people to ask, hey, what's that mean? And then pausing, stopping and explaining it and inviting people to bow their heart and life to Jesus in a way that redirects the course of their life toward followership. I don't know how anyone comes to faith, but God is doing it anyway. He just breaks into places that are so personal and private. The Lord has a way of waking people up spiritually that our job, we feel, in ministry in this region is people who we feel are called by God to make disciples uh, and build the church. Our job is to be people who are in love with Jesus and ready to obey Him day to day, standing ready, waiting for each day's orders, and obeying when the opportunity comes. I just, I guess, want my Omani friends and Omanis everywhere to drop their guard and seek truth. Truth will answer back. Truth is a person, not just an idea.
So I think I've seen that video maybe, you know, hundreds of times and it never fails that uh, when that last graphic comes up, truth will answer back. It just brings tears to my eyes because it's not just a theory or an idea, but church, I've seen it. I've seen the Lord answer back. And in that context where we haven't seen what the Lord has been doing in that region, in a place where historically there's never been a church, never been a local believer, Robbie and I have had the opportunity to witness hearts and lives turn to Jesus. And it started out in small ways where we began to have conversations that looked, you'd see that spark in someone's eye, and someone would make a comment that sounded like, well, I want to be a friend of that kingdom. When we explained who Jesus is and what he's done, it began to look like Robbie interacting with uh, a guy that he had known for months. And finally, this man felt comfortable enough, safe enough to say, no, actually, I've already believed. And we, we were shocked. We didn't know, but it was just the, the goodness of God showing us these little seeds of what he's doing. And in the midst of that, we began to see fruit, but it was all men. It was men. And as, as we were seeing this, we were celebrating, but I had this question before the Lord where I was saying, God, I know that you don't just want to see men from these people groups in front of you for eternity. What are you doing in the hearts of women? And as I began to pray and our team began to pray, the Lord just miraculously showed me what he's doing through a lady that I'll call Mary. Mary's story to Jesus is 20 years long, and it would take me hours to tell, but I'll tell you some highlights that I think are just so cool. Mary, 20 years ago, is a teacher in a local school, and she saw um, a foreign woman give a Bible to one of her students. Now, as a Muslim, this enraged her. It made her very angry, and she said that I attacked her. I think she meant verbally, not physically, but she went after this woman, got her fired from the job, which probably meant that she was also kicked out of the country. And she said in that process of going after God's daughter, God cursed her. And when she was telling me the story, I was like, ooh, I don't know how I feel about this. But it's her story to tell. And she said, when I went after God's daughter, my life just, everything just started going wrong. She got in a horrible car accident and wasn't able to walk for a number of years. Her marriage failed. She even began to develop a phobia of her own holy book, of the Quran, and couldn't be near it. And as these things were taking place through the years, she could point back to my life changed when that happened. And at the same time, she began to question maybe I'm off. Maybe I'm wrong here. And so she began to offer that to God, but didn't have anywhere to go with it. Um, and through the years, all these uh, little details, instances happened. For example, she was in a local market and she saw a beautiful tapestry. So she bought it and she put it on the wall of her home. And it's, it stayed in her home for years. And after years, a cleaner woman was in her home. And this lowly cleaner woman said, ma'am, why do you have Jesus on your wall? And Mary said, that's Jesus? She said, yes, he's the good shepherd. It was a picture of a shepherd with a sheep. And it was Mary's first clue about who Jesus could be in her life, but she had no context for that. She didn't know the parables or the stories, but she filed that away. Jesus is a good shepherd. And as she began to seek and to search, she did something that many of us do when we, want, when we have a question and we want to learn more. What do we do? 
We Google it, right? Mary Googled it. She started Googling things like, who is Jesus? What do Christians believe? And as she was Googling this, uh, the Lord connected her with a Christian Egyptian woman who began to disciple her. As she was discipled in the faith, she thought she was alone in this city. She told this woman in Egypt, I really would love to meet a Christian face to face. And it was like, this is the body of Christ. This woman got on the horn and she got on the internet and she started searching, connected her with a woman in Saudi Arabia. That woman in Saudi Arabia said, I bet we can find a Christian in border town. And so they hunted me down. They found me and I got news out of the blue, out of nowhere one day, there's a woman in your city who believes. Now, when I heard this, it was immediate, wow. But it was also like, it's a too good to be true. It's really too good to be true. And so our team got together, we prayed, we said, this could be miraculous, this could be a believer, this could be a disciple, or this could be some, somebody pretending to be that, and that could be dangerous. We prayed and we said, this is such a great opportunity, we can't say no, let's go. So I went to this meeting with Mary in a public cafe, and I was expecting to meet either a security officer or someone who was scared, afraid, you know, demure, all those things, hiding. And I walked into this cafe and I spotted her. She said, you're Sarah? I said, yeah, I'm Sarah. And she said, I love Jesus. I love him so much. And she just started talking. And I was like, we're all going to jail today. Like this is, this is what's happening. We didn't go to jail. She, she turned out to be the boldest of the bold, still had not had access to a Bible, to scripture. And so even she knew she loved Jesus, but it was so fun to open the word with her and actually explain, why we should love Jesus. Like, yes, you're onto the right thing. Let me tell you why. And so in, in uh, dis- let's see, yep, December 2019, on Christmas Day, we celebrated communion together. And it's the first time that we know of from that tribe that anyone has said yes to Jesus. And the communion was so special. You know, she had never done it before. So we had our little bread and our juice and all that. And we, we went through the, the communion process. And at the end of it, she said, that was awesome. What now? And I was like, that was it. That's, that's communion. She said, I want to do it again. And, and I was saying, well, yeah, well, maybe we could do it next week. Or we could do it next month. And as I was trying to explain it to her, she just grabbed the plate and ate all the bread. And then she chugged the juice and she said, I want all of Jesus. I want everything he has to offer me. And I was like, well, I've never done communion like this before, but more power to you. This is awesome. So that, that's just one just slice one little window glimpse into what we know the Lord is doing around the Arab world. And we are excited to be a part of it. And it's not just Mary's story. It's not just our story. Church, this is your story today because you are partnering with us and with the Lord and what he's doing. How can we partner? We can pray. We have prayer cards out there. Please take one with you and please pray with us. Uh, I always tell people, thank you for praying for our safety. Keep praying. It's working. We have stories of God's safety in our lives, but please don't just pray for that. Also pray above and beyond that. Pray for open doors. Pray for miracles. Pray for dreams and visions in dark places and in in homes that have never heard before. But please pray with us. Thank you for giving. Uh, We're honored to partner with you. People ask us, when are you going back? And the very non-spiritual but very true answer is we go back when we raise our budget. And so you're a part of that. Thank you for giving. And lastly, you can partner by going. You might be going, whoa, let me tell you, God has a plan for all of our lives. We're going to learn more about that today as we look into the word. And if the Lord taps you on the shoulder and says, I have a plan for you and it involves going to another place, please come talk to us. 
our journey isn't done. Um, as we go forward, we actually thought we were going to be going back to Border Town. We still have a team there. They're doing awesome things there. Uh, but recently, our story had a shift because we were asked, would we go into a new country in the Arabian Peninsula, start a church planting team where there's never been one, invite people to join our team, and will we be a light in darkness in a country that's never had AG missionaries? And Robbie and I, we love border town. So it took us a few months to pray this through. And we asked the Lord, God, is this your will? And when he said yes, we said, we'll go. So thank you. Thank you for going with us and for partnering with us to see lost people come into the kingdom. Amen. Thank you, guys. How many of you have been with us for any of the part of our study in the book of Acts? Real quick. Okay. Do you hear a lot of parallels between their lives and, and the book of Acts, especially the Apostle Paul? You know, you hear a family who was called to be missionaries and they start in one country and they go there until the doors close and then they go to another country until God reassigns them. And then they go to that country and things are going great and things are going well. And then an invitation seemingly out of left field, even though it wasn't a surprise to God, surprise to them. And they say, do we stay here and continue the work here? Or do we go into a new place where no one has ever gone with the gospel before? And... If you're trying to put yourself into their shoes, and I mean, they have a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old who I think you told me they've spent more time on the mission field than they have in the States, right? So they've spent most of their lives growing up not in the, in the USA. And you think, man, I don't know if I could see myself in their shoes. What about all the logistics? What about relationships and friends and laws? Can you appreciate the life of Paul? Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Priscilla and Aquila. Can you appreciate their lives and the boldness and the courage, the flexibility, the willing to take risks, the trust that was required, not just to go and preach the gospel, but to find a house or a tent or a place to lay their head, to eat, all the different things that go along with it. And it is a privilege, it's a responsibility we have in the kingdom of God as his kids and in family to link arms with our missionaries and say, we will pray for you, we will encourage you, and we will give and we will fund the expansion of the gospel into places it hasn't been carried yet. That to me is such an amazing opportunity and privilege. If you've read with me, the Apostle Paul, who gets credit for being probably one of the more uh, one of the most famous missionaries ever, if not the most famous missionary. But he had special connection to a home church. And do you remember where that church was? We've read about it in Acts. Do you remember where his home church was or his sending church was? I failed as a teacher. Antioch, Syrian Antioch. And you're all like, oh yeah, that was, I, I was going to Google it, but you know, I didn't have, and have good internet service in my seat because um, I got here late and I had to sit up front instead of in the back. No, I'm just kidding. We always joke you have to get here early to get a seat in the back. Syrian Antioch was his home church. When he went on his first journey, they prayed for them, they encouraged him, they gave and they sent him out. When, before he went on his second journey, his church prayed for him, gave to him and sent him out. When he goes on his next journey, same thing. And do you remember on his second journey, that's what we've been studying. We're in Acts 18 today. We've been following through his second missionary adventure. 
And Paul started off with a plan, an itinerary. I want to go to, you know, I want to go to Lystra and Derby first, and then I want to go to this city, and then that city. So he goes to Lystra and Derby, brings Timothy on his team. They have a little surgical procedure we talked about. You can listen to that one later. And then he keeps on going to the next city on his plan. He wants to go there and preach the gospel. And does he get to go to that city? Yes or no? You have a 50-50 shot here. Does he get to go to that city? He does not. The Holy Spirit prevents him. I really have a sense I need to re-preach all of these sermons today, because, but I can't. There's a pattern. He wanted to go to that city, but the Holy Spirit prevented him from going. So he said, oh, must be the next city on the itinerary. And they want to go in there and preach the gospel, but the Holy Spirit prevents them from going in there. So they conclude, well, let's just go to the port and let's wait there. Let's wait in Troas. They add Luke to the team. And then Paul gets a revelation from God. He gets a, a special revelation from God through a vision that he's supposed to go to Europe. And so they get on a boat and they become, to the best of our knowledge, the first Christians to go into Europe carrying the truth about Jesus Christ. And way back near the beginning, that part of that equation was a church who said, we believe in your call. We're going to pray for you. We're going to send you. We're going to support you. Do you understand in some sense our church has an opportunity to in some way be like that church in Syrian Antioch where we can say, Robbie, Sarah, kids, we believe in you. We believe in God's call on your life. We believe in the people you've been sent to reach and we will pray for you and support you and we will send you into a place to be the very first ever into that space. First of Sons of God, World Nations, into that space with the gospel. We're part of God's plan to reach the world. The church is God's plan. You're like, doesn't he have a better one? Hasn't come up with a better one yet. We're the plan. You're like, was that wise of God to entrust that, that to us? Well, he has. He's entrusted to you and to me to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone. So we pick up Paul's story. We left him. Maybe you can get this one. This was just last week. We left Paul in the city of Corinth. Thank you, Alicia. We left him in the city of Corinth. He arrives in Corinth on the heels of being in Athens. And when he gets to Corinth... He's all by himself in a brand new city. He has no family there. He has no friends there. There's no church there, but there's a whole lot of idol worship there. And there's a whole lot of sin in that city. And one of the first things God does is he leads him to make new friends. A husband and a wife. Do you remember them? Priscilla and Aquila. And I remember from last week, I met Priscilla, right? Hi, Priscilla. Good morning. Thanks for coming back. She's, it was her first time here last week with her family. And uh, I introduced myself to them after service. I said, and what's your name? And she just laughed. She's like, Priscilla, because we talked about Priscilla. I was like, and now if your husband's name is Aquila, which it wasn't, like that would be just too, that would be too coincidental. But uh, he, he makes new friends. God brings new friends into his life right away. And he starts working part-time and teaching where does he usually teach? Synagogue. What population? Jews. How was it going? Not well. This is kind of a pattern. My five-year-old Isaiah, he's learning patterns in preschool. He loves patterns. He likes where you play games where you give, you show him a pattern a couple times and then you leave one of the parts out and he has to guess which one comes next. 
If I were to play the pattern game with Paul's life with Isaiah, here's what it would look like. Paul goes to a new city. He goes to the synagogue. He preaches to the Jews. And then bad things happen. (laughs) Then he goes to a new city. And he goes to the synagogue. And he preaches to the Jews. And bad things happen. And he goes to a new city and preaches the synagogue, goes to the synagogue, preaches the Jews, and bad things happen. So he goes to Corinth, he's in a new city, he preaches in the synagogue, he preaches to the Jews, and what happens? Bad things happen. Do you remember last week he had a little bit of a holy temper tantrum? He finally realizes they've crossed the line. The Corinthian Jews have crossed the line. At first, they're making fun of Paul. They're picking on him personally. And he learned a valuable lesson as a believer. Don't take things personally that aren't intended personally. He recognized, yeah, it's coming out at me personally, but they're they're really irritated with God, and I'm just in the middle. I'm not going to take it personally because this is a spiritual issue. However, they crossed the line, and they started blaspheming against Jesus, and Paul drew the line. And remember his little temper tantrum? He finally had it one day. And in a public forum, and probably at Sabbath service, they had crossed the line, and Paul kind of loses it. And he basically, it says he started, he shook all the dust off of himself. He didn't want any of them rubbing off on him. And he says, your blood is on your own heads. Could you imagine if I just lost in the middle of a service and went down that road with you? That would be YouTube fame right there. Like, your blood is on your own heads. I'm innocent. I've told you the truth and you choose not to do it. I'm out of here. I'm not going to the Jews anymore. I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm going to go out there and go after them. And I'm going as far away as next door. <laughs> Did you read the, that? True story. That's what happens. He leaves. He says, I'm going after the Gentiles. And he goes right next door to the house of a man named Titius Justus, who was a believer. Titius welcomes Paul into his home and says, you can use my house to teach from. And they started inviting other Corinthians. And they were coming by the tens and the dozens and maybe even by the hundreds. And the Gentiles were hearing the truth of Jesus. And they were repenting and believing and finding salvation through Jesus. And as Paul is walking out of the synagogue that day, he doesn't walk out by himself. Do you remember who goes along with him? I heard it over here. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue. See, Paul thought it was all wasted effort, but there was at least one key family there that did hear what he was teaching, and they believed in Jesus. And that was the leader of the synagogue. And he follows Paul, and they go right next door. In the meantime, Silas and Timothy, his old friends, they finally catch up. He had left them behind in Berea to to disciple the leaders there. He sent word back to catch up as soon as they could, and they come to Paul. They bring an offering from the churches in Macedonia. They encourage him. And now Paul, over the period of a few weeks, goes from being by himself to being surrounded with friends, new friends and old friends. He goes from having to work a part-time job to being able to give himself fully to the ministry. He goes from feeling like his preaching was accomplishing nothing to being in a church that is growing every day with new believers to the eye. Everything looked like it was going great. His life looked like it was better than it had been in a long time. And yet Luke records for us that at night, Paul still wasn't sleeping well. I wonder if you've been like that in this season of your life or to the naked eye, things were going fine at work, things were fine financially, Family was good, friends were good, but you still just weren't at peace at night. There was something still gnawing at you. And years later, I guess Paul told Luke about this, and Luke writes this in. It was a profound moment in his life. We find out what Paul was wrestling with at night, and 
God steps in through a vision and gives Paul something in theological terms we would call special revelation. Now, I want to pause here. I want to see if we can define a word because you're going to hear this tossed around in churches appropriately and also inaccurately. Can you help me define what does the word revelation mean? To reveal. That's a good one. Let's just shorten it up. To reveal. But that's right. Now, I want you to be honest with me. Please be honest with me. How many of you have ever watched HGTV? Okay. Fellas, I, I see a couple guys were like, it's okay. You were just trying to earn some points. It's all good. Have you seen these types of shows where like they go into a house that just looks like it got run over by a truck? Your house? Your husband's sitting right next to you. He's saying it doesn't look like that. <laughs> oh, that is true. You have three kids. I, I, that, I have two and they do the damage of four, so I understand. But have you seen these shows where basically the plot of the show is HGTV and their team find some house that is in desperate need of some kind of makeover, some kind of repair, redecorating, decluttering. They send the homeowners away and then their team does all the work and then they bring them back to show them what they did and they call it the big reveal, right? Now, when there is a big reveal... There's a group of people who already know what's about to be revealed and a group of people who has no idea what they're about to see. In that television show, the designers and the owners, which group of people know already what's about to be revealed? The designers. And who has no idea? The owners. So it's up to the designers to decide at a time of their choosing when they're going to disclose something to the owners that the designers knew, the owners didn't, and the only way for the owners to know is if the designers choose to pull back the curtain and let them see. That's what it means to reveal. Now, let's carry that into what we understand about the word revelation. Think of God, the creator, the designer. What does he know? Everything, all things, your future, your past, your present. He knows it all. We don't. How will we ever be able to see our lives like God does? There's only one possible option, and that is revelation. You and I can't chisel through that curtain. Thankfully, God has pulled it back and chosen to reveal things to us out of his good pleasure so we can see things as he sees things. So when we talk about revelation... I won't go too deep into this. I just want you to understand there is, a, there is a difference between what is called general revelation and what is called special revelation. Let me start with general. Even if you've had no theology class, that's okay. I think you can get it by context. What do you think general revelation means? It is revelation, something God chooses to disclose that is generally available to who? Everybody, all the time, at any point in history, all accessible to you. Things that God knows, that he's imagined, designed, created, seen, that he chooses to reveal to you somehow, some way, in a general sense, so that anybody, anywhere, at any time could get it. What is the primary place we can go to understand what God has generally revealed? I'll give you a hint. 
this is the primary source of what we call general revelation. This is God's word. It is true. It is complete. It is accurate. It is relevant for everybody, everywhere, all the time. That's why we make such effort to get this book translated into the hands of every language group and people group. Now, in the first service, someone called out, and they're right. Romans chapter 1 also says God's creation is a source of revelation. You know, people who, who haven't even had a copy of the word. You heard a fascinating story about it today where someone who didn't, at that time didn't even have access to a Bible, hadn't even seen the Bible, buys a quilt, hangs it up in her home, and later on finds out, oh, there's, that's actually Jesus that's hanging on a quilt in my home. That's some kind of a special thing that I can't even explain. You see how amazing God is at revealing himself. So you have general revelation, and that is ultimate authority. We give the Bible ultimate authority, which means if we're ever at loggerheads with what I think, feel, and want, and what the Bible says, I give the Bible authority. The Bible can tell me what to do and what not to do. The Bible tells me how to live my life and how not to live my life. It has authority over me. I don't have authority over it. It trumps all. It is the ultimate authority. Now, by comparison, there's another kind of revelation we see in the Bible and we can experience today. It's called special revelation. What do you think, by context and by comparison, I mean when I say special revelation? If general revelation is for anybody, all the time, everywhere, what might special revelation be? Something God reveals to, to maybe just you, or maybe a room of people, maybe a family, a group of people, that is for a specific time, a specific event, a specific season in your life. It's specific to you, okay? There's lots of different ways that people have talked about receiving special revelation. Visions, dreams, your thoughts in prayer, something you saw during worship, another messenger of God tells you. Here's what I want you to understand, and this is not a tangent, this is key to the story. Here's something I want you to be careful of. We can get a little sloppy with special revelation. You might have heard a television preacher or a real life preacher, just another believer said, well, the Lord told me that dot, dot, dot. Now, if you start off a sentence like that, you best be very, very careful because you have just taken upon yourself the responsibility of communicating on God's behalf in his name. How seriously does God take his reputation and his word? Life and death. What can happen is you can have somebody who says, well, the Lord told me dot, 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 and they could say something out of their mouth that is inaccurate or incorrect. Some examples. Um, There's a season of our life uh, where Kendra and I really wanted to have children, and we weren't able for any number of reasons, um, and we're really wrestling with that reality. When I say a season, I mean like eight to ten years. And well-intentioned people who knew that part of our life, who loved Jesus with all their heart, would come to us sometimes and say that they had a word of the Lord for us. Uh, There were two ladies in our church at the time who, over the course of two weeks, each came to us individually with a similar but a different message. 
First lady comes to us and says, God has shown me as I was praying, the Lord has shown me that you guys are going to have a baby girl. And we were like, okay, that's, that's, that's great. Thank you. Two weeks later, another lady comes up. The Lord showed me in a dream that you are going to have a baby and it is going to be a boy. Now, unless we were going to set some type of odd history, one of them wasn't right. <laughs> I had another instance where there was uh, I, a gentleman in the church where we were pastoring invited me out to lunch um, and began lunch by saying, I want you to know I've been angry at you for two years. I was like, well, this is going to be delightful. A nice icebreaker, and proceeded to unload on me for about 30 minutes all the reasons why said person was angry at me. I mean, it kept really good records of things I didn't even remember. Um, I remember the first one was that at one point I hadn't given him for, I hadn't given him, I thought, it, I, I, I hadn't given him credit for an idea that he says he had. He didn't get credit for it. That's a little petty, but okay. But it just snowballed from there. And I let him go for a while. And at the end of it, and at the end of it, he said, and we have, we've had fellowship together regularly. We have traveled to do this and we've done that event. And our kids have played together. And, blah, blah, blah. and I've been mad at you for two years. And I said, dude, if we have this kind of friendship, why didn't you tell me two years ago? Why did you let this build up? He says, because that's not what the Lord would want me to do. I said, What? He said, well, I, I prayed about it, and the Lord told me to just hold my tongue. I was like, well, you haven't. I said, what about what the Lord says in Matthew 18? That if there's an issue between you and another believer, you don't go any farther. You go and resolve it. He said, well, then I guess I disagree with Matthew 18. Here's what happens. I have special revelation, and it trumps general revelation. No, it does not. Whatever you think God is saying to you in special revelation, let me just tell you, check it against the word. Fact, check it against the Bible. I'm not doubting that God speaks to us in our prayer life, but understand we are human and our brains aren't perfect. And the way we interpret what we think God might be saying is subject to error. There have been people that have gone astray with this. I mean, I, I, I could tell all kinds of stories. You probably could too. Or people who in the name of the Lord have said wrong things. One of my favorite... My favorite story. Oh, someone was in. Uh, someone had given a message in tongues in a congregation, and the other person was interpreting it. And the person says, "Thus saith the Lord, just as I was with Moses as he entered the ark." <laughs> Kept on going. Awkward silence. And the person said, "Thus saith the Lord, I stand corrected. It was Noah." <laughs> You understand we're human beings trying to interpret esoteric things. If you think God is saying something to you, fact check it, and if it passes the Bible test, hold on to it. If you think God's saying something to you and you fact check against the Bible and it doesn't work, flush it. Okay? Paul is in a situation... I have so much more to say about that, but not enough time to say it. We'll just keep, keep it moving. Um, so you hear me saying, I'm not diminishing special revelation. We've got to fact check what we think God is telling us against his word because the Holy Spirit is not schizophrenic. He's not going to say to one person, uh, you know what, it, if there's an issue between you and another believer, go make it right. And to another one just saying, listen, you just bottle that up and let it build up for two years and then hammer him over lunch. 
Special revelation, general revelation. Paul gets a special revelation in Corinth when he's not having a good time sleeping at night. In chapter 18, God sends a vision through Jesus to Paul at night. And he says some things to Paul that he remembers and repeats to Luke who writes it down. He says, this is what I remember the Lord said to me. He said, don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. He said those three things to me. And then he also said to me, because I am with you and I will make sure that any attack against you will not harm you. Those five things. That's what Paul remembered when he recounts this to Luke. It was special. God didn't send that vision to everybody in the city, just sent it to Paul. But my question is, was that really a message from God? Does it pass the fact check? Well, what was the first thing? He says, fear not, don't be afraid. Well, let's fact check against that. I can say even throw the New Testament out. Just look at the Old Testament. Fear not. Is that something that's backed up by the Bible? It's the most repeated command in the Bible, found in there 113 times. So he could hold on to that. How about be bold and speak out because I'm with you? Would he have been familiar, what, would he have been familiar hearing that in the past? Yeah, Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 3. Must be preaching good, I guess. Deuteronomy 3, Joshua 1. I feel frozen in place. I'm going to move slowly, put my hands here. I'm not going to electrocute or anything, am I? Because can we stop the live stream if you expect that coming? Okay. I'll turn this off and I'll... Help me, where was I? <laughs> okay, you're totally with me. And you say, be bold. All right, I'm there. All right. Yeah, so we've heard that before. Joshua, right? We heard, and Deuteronomy 3. Um, then he says, I will be with you. Have you heard that before? Totally there. And then the last one he says, I will make sure that no attack that's formed against you will succeed. Does that pass the Bible test? Have you heard that one? Yeah? Jer or, uh, Isaiah 54, 19. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Best song Fred Hammond ever made, but I mean, it's a really good song. But yeah, everything God said in that special revelation passed. So you hold on to it because when God speaks to you, you can trust him that he's going to make good in his word. So Luke gives us an example. Luke wants us to see what happened after that vision. So let's look at that together. What happened after that night? What's interesting is we can find out probably exactly what Paul was contemplating before that vision came. Let's see if you can find it. It's in verse 11. It's one of these verses we'd normally throw away. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the word of God. What decision did he make after that vision? To stay. So what was he wrestling with? Do I stay or do I? Yeah. Have you ever been there? God, do you want me to push through or should I get out of here? Do I resign or do I push on? He was right there. And God is such a good communicator, he answered him. Stick around. So Paul stayed there for a year and a half teaching the word of God. I'll give you a date. 52 AD, that's when we know that there was a change in the proconsul of Corinth. Verse 12. But when Gallio became governor of Achaia, some Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the governor for judgment. Now, should this have surprised Paul? God tipped him off, didn't he? 
Didn't God say when attacks form, what will he do? He'll make sure it doesn't harm you. Understand, when he says no weapon formed against me will prosper, doesn't say the weapon won't be formed, just says it won't succeed. So don't be alarmed when opposition gets in the way of you doing God's will and God's plan for your life. Just understand, you be like a football coach that studied a film, and when that team lines up to run the play they've scored on every week, you just say, we knew this was coming, let's put up the right defense. You don't have to be afraid when the enemy opposes you. If you're following the Lord, he will defend you. He will be true to his word. Some Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the governor for judgment. Here's what they say. The Jews accused Paul of persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to, here's the caveat, you got it, our law. You know what they're doing? They're bringing a religious case into the government's court system. They couldn't get Paul to shut up by bullying him around. All that they could do is try and manipulate the Roman justice system against Paul. And so they basically say, we want, my word's not theirs, we want the state to get involved in the church, in the religious community. So Paul is now backed up against the wall here. He's in a hostile environment. He's got the accusing Jews who don't like him. And now he's going before the Roman government. He doesn't have a good track record with them either. Let's see what happens in verse 14. Just as Paul started to make his defense, he was going to defend himself. Gallio turned to Paul's accusers and said, listen, you Jews, which you need to see the anti-Semitism here and it'll play out later. Listen, you Jews, if this were a case involving some legal wrongdoing or a serious crime, I'd have a reason to accept your case. Verse 15, but since it's merely a question of words and names in your Jewish law, you take care of it yourselves. I refuse to judge such matters. And he threw them out of the courtroom. Let's pause here. This is a good part of the story. God is defending Paul through what we'll find out in a minute is a broken anti-Semite government official. And God creatively proves to Paul that he's with him and that even though there's an attack, he's not going to get hurt because guess what happens? Long before, you know, even we wrote a U.S. Constitution, Gallio has this idea of separation of church from state. And he says, it's not up to the government to interfere in the matters of religion. And so I'm going to keep my hands off. And since this isn't a crime against our law, you deal with it yourselves. And so their plan backfires and he throws them out of the courtroom. And God defends his reputation. And God shows Paul that this weapon formed against him wouldn't prosper and that he would be with him. Paul didn't even have to say a single word. And I want you to know when your accusers come against you in the name of evil, you don't even have to defend yourself. You don't have to defend yourself. The Lord will defend his righteous children. He'll do it better than you. And look, sometimes we get impatient like, God, you will not get them as good as I could get them, as fast as I could get them, and with the words that I would use. And what the Lord says is, all right, well, if, you know, in, in Romans 12 and 13, we read that God says vengeance belongs to him. He will repay. He's saying there's a list. Revenge is up to God. It doesn't mean it's up to nobody. God says, I will keep accurate records of the people who do you wrong. So you don't have to keep those records. The problem is we want to start working off of God's lists. And we want to go get vengeance on them ourselves. And then God has to wait until you're done for him to deal with you and get you in line so he can actually deal with the people who did you wrong. 
You want, to, you want God to, to handle these things? Just get out of the way and let him do the defending for you. Let him do the defending for you. He does it best. And then verse 17 is this weird scene, to, this weird sentence to conclude this scene. Then the crowd, who are all Corinthians, grabbed Sosthenes, the Jewish leader of the synagogue, who was part of this group of Jews who came to accuse Paul. We kind of say, well, this is one of the bad guys in the story. And you're thinking, well, Sosthenes, leader of the synagogue, didn't they have another leader named Crispus? Yeah, but he left uh, to join the church, and so they had to have a replacement. Sosthenes is a replacement. What did the Gentiles do? They beat the Jewish man right there in the courtroom. Racial violence, anti-Semitism, and Gallio pays no attention. So before we put Gallio up on this high status, yes, he did something noble, but he also did something horrible. And I wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with this story. Like, why does Luke include this here? Because he's trying to give us an example of how God wouldn't let evil went out over his kids. And I couldn't put it together. Why include Sosthenes? Because here is a man who came in with bad intentions, but then gets beaten because of his race. Why include that? And I looked all over Acts, I couldn't find it. But fortunately, by the end of the week, it kind of dawned on me that later on, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, uh, wrote a couple. We have a couple of them. Can I just read you why I think this verse is there? It comes from 1 Corinthians 1.1. Again, a verse we don't preach from often. Paul later on writes a letter back to the same city and to this church that he planted. And he says, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Sosthenes. So what must have happened between this beating and Paul's letter back to the church? What must have happened in Sosthenes' life? He gets saved. He finds faith in Jesus. He believes he repents and he becomes part of the church and he becomes a colleague of Paul and he participates in writing these letters. What did the enemy want to happen to Sosthenes there? You know what he wanted Sosthenes to turn into? A cold, hard man who hated other Corinthians based on race. And you know what he turns into? A son of the king who gives his life to reach his fellow Corinthians. I think Luke is showing us God was defending the son who was already in the kingdom. And God also had some kind of a shield over the son who wasn't in the kingdom yet. And I can't parse that all the way theologically. But I think Luke wants to also show us that the enemy did, when the enemy couldn't succeed on snuffing out Paul's message, he tried to preemptively snuff out Sosthenes' message, and that didn't work either. I'll just leave that there. We've got to keep going. How awesome is God? And how many times when you weren't serving Jesus should your life have ended? He loved you even before you thought of him. I'll leave that there. I really want to preach there. I can't because I've got like four minutes left to finish this chapter. I, I got to keep reading. I got to keep reading. We'll pick this up next week. Verse 18. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that. Then he said goodbye to the brothers and sisters. That's the church. And he went to nearby Sencria. There he, and I love this verse, speaks to my heart every time. I do this with Paul every day. He shaved his head. But he did it for a different reason than I do. I do just because I've accepted reality and I see men walking around in denial, but this is reality. Um, he shaved it, no judgment, right? 
He shaved his head according to Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. Hmm, that's right. Then he set sail. I want you to understand, if you've ever, have you ever flown on a flight that had multiple connections? How enjoyable is that? This is not. What do you call it when you stop in a city or an airport that's not your final destination? What do you call it? A layover. I want you to understand, Paul is basically buying a ticket to go back to Syria, which is where his home church is. He's wrapping up his second missionary journey. He's finished at Corinth. He shaves his head, marking the end of probably a Nazarite vow. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. Nazarite vow, that was part of the, what we call the Old Testament. Exactly. That was kind of part of their law and their old Jewish customs. Exactly. So Paul was practicing old Jewish customs. At least this one, yes. Is he being wishy-washy? Because didn't he just travel all over Europe telling the Jews that they don't have to be bound by that? That's what he just told them. So is he confused? Not at all. He's just showing them that if you still want to, for reasons that you choose to practice some of those customs and things because it has meaning to you, go for it. But do it because you want to, not because you're making a new law out of an old law. In other words, Paul chose, and I could really unpack this, I can't, for any number of reasons, to, to take a Nazarite vow. One of the things was you grew your hair out. It was an act of celebration and commitment unto the Lord. You cut back on your parting and your celebration and you grew out your hair. And when you ended the vow, you shaved your hair. He was also getting ready. He knew he'd be going to Jerusalem and didn't want to bother the Jews. Maybe he wanted to get all of the residue of Corinth off of him. I don't know. But all we know is, well, why did he take a Nazarite vow? Well, simply because he wanted to as a way to get closer to the Lord. That was it. What do we do with this today? We simply say this. If you decide there's some things about the way that the Jews live their life and practice their life that you want to adopt to your life because you choose to, go for it. And if you don't, don't go for it. Well, Pastor, I, I like to celebrate Passover with my family. Go for it and learn about Jesus all you can in that moment. Pastor, is it wrong that we don't celebrate Passover? Not at all. Let's just not make new rules where there are none. There are lots of valuable things in the Old Testament that we can practice that we don't have to out of obligation. What are there for us if we choose to integrate some of those things into our walk with the Lord? Then he set sail for Syria. Cool detail. Who's he take with him? Priscilla and Aquila. His new friends that he made, they become such tight friends that they pack up their business and travel along and become part of his ministry team. Verse 19. They stopped at, here's the first layover. Keep in mind, Ephesus is not the final destination. They stopped at the first port of Ephesus where Paul left the others behind. That's an important detail. The others, Priscilla, Aquila, Silas, Timothy, maybe Luke, probably not. He was probably still in Philippi. But he leaves his traveling partners behind. Why? Well, we'll get there. I think you'll see it. While he was there at the layover, he went to the premier lounge, got a shower, how did it, that's not what he does. What does he do during his layover? And here's the pattern, right? We went over this. New city, he goes to the synagogue. What does he do there? Reasons with the Jews and how, what happens next? Bad things. So if we're playing the pattern game, he's in a new city, he goes to the synagogue, he went there to reason with the Jew, what does the pattern say happens next? Bad things. But you know what they do? What's verse 20 say? They ask him to stay longer. At long last, they like me. They really like me, right? He's, here's what they like his preaching. Why don't you stay? This Jesus, we want to know more. This is great preaching. And Paul is so overwhelmed and so excited, he declined. 
<laughs> what? Don't you? You can't make this up. If you wanted to make up a story, this is not the story you'd make up. No one would believe it. As he left, because where was his final destination? Where, where, what did God put on his heart? Where is he supposed to go? What was his t- ticket booked for? Syria. And along the way, there were good opportunities that were God opportunities, but they weren't for him for that day. And you're saying, what? You know what you see here? This is called spiritual growth and maturity. Because a year and a half ago, Paul had an itinerary. And he wanted to go into city after city, and God said, no, 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 you go where I tell you to go. And now a year and a half later, he goes into his city, and he knows that's not ultimately the city he's supposed to be in for right now. And so when they say, stay here longer, he declines because he's grown up spiritual, and he trusts the navigator to tell him where to go and where to stay. And I know you're thinking, but these people were hungry to hear More about the gospel. Okay, well, you can be all right. Go back to verse 19. They stopped at the first port of Ephesus where Paul did what? Who did he leave in Ephesus when he left? Silas, Timothy, Priscilla, and Aquila. Four awesome Bible teachers. So Paul's saying essentially, I'm not going to stay and keep teaching, but guess what? I know you're hungry. Here's four Bible teachers. Have at it. And then he says, I will come back later. And he adds a phrase at the end. God willing. Have you ever said that? See you next Sunday at church. Well, the Lord willing. Am I going to see you tomorrow for breakfast? Well, you know, Lord willing. Paul has grown up so much here. Because you know what he tells us? I'll give the, I don't even know if I gave you the last application point. I said it 15 times, but didn't. I don't know if we put it on the screen. But here's the application point to land on. Our plans must always be subject to God's will. You have plans. I have plans. Some of you are like, I ain't got no plans. I pray for you. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Plans. Does the Bible forbid planning? No. Haven't you heard the axiom? If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Not from Proverbs, but sounds proverbial. There's lots of good plans that we can make. Lots of good plans. In fact, your plans have pretty significant pull in what you say yes or no to. Haven't there been lots of things you really didn't want to go to? And when the invitation was extended, your excuse sounded like this, I would love to, but I already have plans that I'm making up right now. We make plans. Your plans have a lot of, you give them a lot of authority in your life. Don't your plans kind of tell you where you're going to live, what you're going to live in, what you're going to spend your money on, what you're going to save your money for, where you're going to work, how you're going to take vacation, who you're going to spend time with. We make lots of plans. Nothing wrong with making plans. I want you to know your father makes plans. For I know the what? The plans I have for you. Now here's the question. There's two notebooks here, right? You've got a notebook full of your plans, but you know what? God also has a notebook full of plans for you. 
And if you haven't figured this out yet, if you follow God long enough, there will be lots of times when your plans and God's plans bump into each other. And it's easy when your plans are nefarious, sinful, selfish, prideful, foolish, reckless to say this isn't the right thing to do. It's another thing when your plans are on the surface, good, moral, upright, and prosperous. Paul reminds us that even the best of our plans need to be subject to God's will for our lives. If you want to know God's will, figure out and have him reveal his plan because where God's plans are, his will is. What plans are driving your life right now? Do you have a financial plan? Is that driving your life? I will tell you at times, your financial plan and God's plans might bump into each other. I didn't share this in the first service, didn't have time, but I'll share it right now because I feel led to. Worship team, why don't you come as I do this? Um, You know, we drive our cars a long time. It's a car story. We drive our cars a long time. And uh, one of our goals was to never, ever have to make a car payment. And when when the car conks out and can't be repaired or driven any longer and we have to replace it, we will take money that we've saved for said purpose and we'll use that to purchase whatever vehicle we can at the time. Now, the only way you can start doing that in our case was to drive our cars a long time and to discipline ourselves every month to setting aside some money and letting that accrue and grow over time. Well, a few years ago, um, we got ready to launch an advance initiative here at our church. And as part of that, we hired a company called Generis to come in and help us learn how to prepare our church financially to move from renting the high school into finding property and developing it and moving in and occupy these spaces. And we knew that part of that was going to be we needed to raise some cash to be able to do that because we were a brand new congregation, had been sovereign less than a year, and nobody was going to lend us any money. We had no collateral other than a, you know, a trailer and some mats that you pushed in every week and a coffee set, but you can't get a loan against that. So we knew we needed to have some cash, and part of that was we needed to, as a church family, decide what we could do and the first person that was met with and the only person I think that was met with was me and the, the person that was leading our campaign, campaign sat down with me and he said, well, Phil, you're going to make the first commitment. I said, okay. He said, you need to go home to your family and you guys need to pray together and think about the type of commitment that you're going to make. And so um, the way that I kind of figured that out was I went into our family budget and figured out, okay, here's, as we operate on an annual budget and I just looked at the I'm kind of a spreadsheet nerd and I knew exactly there was a, a figure at the end of each of the next three years that I was like this is what we have that's left over and I had that all together and I was like that's pretty not, that's not enough and so I multiplied that by four and I said we're going to trust God for that that's what's going to be our commitment so I went to my wife who hates spreadsheets and I just said have you talked to the Lord about this she said yeah she gave me a number that was double my number I remember a pastor who, in the name of the Lord, one time said, hey, when there's two numbers, the bigger number is God. And I was like, that's manipulative. I don't like that. And I'm like, babe, we can write any number on a piece of paper, but I'm not going to just wish that it comes in. Like, I want to come up with some sort of reasonable plan. I said, our budget doesn't support this. It's like, if we stop contributing my retirement, which we did, and we stop some of these other things, which we did, if we cut that out, that doesn't even get the whole way there. And she's like, well, we have money set aside that we've been saving for a car if we add all of that to it 
we can get there. And I'd like to say that we wrestled about it. We didn't. I was just like, okay. And thankfully, over three, we were able to give that entire amount that God put on our heart to the advance campaign to help move into this building. We had a good plan. And there's nothing wrong with, I don't think there's anything wrong with setting aside money to be able to pay cash for things. I think that that's honoring the Lord. At the same time, that plan came into a little bit of tension with God's will because we also felt that a few years into that, that God was refining that plan. And the truth of the matter is if we hadn't started saving that way, we wouldn't have been able to give the amount that God put on our heart to give. You see what I mean? And so we, we just had to pivot and say, if this is really the Lord, this is really Him, and it's really His will, then we're going to subject our plan to his plan. And I remember sharing it with a group of men that were praying with me in the morning at the time. And one of the guys, he, he doesn't attend the church anymore. One of the guys in the circle said, oh, well, if you do that, God will definitely give you a new car. I said, what? Because that sounds like prosperity gospel. I said, God owes me nothing. Because if you give that way, you're basically saying, all right, God, you owe me. That's backwards. I owe him. He owes me nothing. Jesus paid it all, all to him. I owe. I said, he doesn't owe me a car. I give because I love him and because I obey him. What plans have you made? When, when is the last time you took that plan back to the Lord and said, God, is this still your will for my life? Or, do, or are you wanting to make some adjustments? You want to make some revisions? Paul said, I'll be back as long as it's God's will. What a beautiful place to be. That allows you to plan, but also to submit at the same time. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to pray for you this morning. Pastor, I don't know what God's will is for me specifically. That's okay. Before you understand it specifically for you, you can understand it generally for all of us. His will for all of us is that we come into his kingdom and become his kids. We are his kids, but we're running from him. He wants you to leave your kingdom and come into his. And there's only one way in. It's through Jesus. He wants to save you. He wants to forgive you of your sins. He wants to give you a brand new life. He wants to make you a brand new person. He wants to reveal to you your purpose, your identity, your hope, which is durable. Pastor, how do I have that? I want that. Awesome. You have to believe and you have to repent. Repent means you have to turn away from living in your kingdom by your rules and doing life your way. You have to turn away from that and turn to God the King. But you also have to believe. What do I have to believe? You have to believe just a couple things. You need to believe you need to be saved, that you are incapable of living the better life you know you should be living, but that you aren't, and that no matter how hard you try, you can't make yourself into that person. You have to believe you need to be saved. Secondly, you need to believe that Jesus can save you, that he has the ability to change you and to turn your life around, that he has the power to wipe away your past and to fill you with his spirit and to give you an abundant life that you can live to the full. You have to believe that he can, that he did what you couldn't do, that he lived the sinless life you should have lived, that he died on the cross as your substitute in your place, in my place, and that he paid the penalty that I deserved and you deserved, and he rose again to prove that he truly defeated sin and death. You have to believe that. final thing you have to believe is that he will save you if you ask him. 
that when he hears you cry out to him and call out to him, when he hears you confess to him, that he won't turn a blind eye to you and say, ah, not you. You got to get cleaned up first. You got to be a better person first. You got to get your act together first. You just have to believe that when you call out to him, that he will save you. Just like the thief that hung on one side of on the cross, he just said, Remember me. And Jesus said, I will remember you. You'll be with me. Just like Peter, when he was sinking in the water, he reached out and he said, Master, save me. I perish. And Jesus reached out and grabbed him. If you'll just confess to him your belief in him and you ask, Jesus, save me, he will. He'll hear you. In fact, you can pray a prayer that simple right now, a prayer that says this. You can pray this prayer. Jesus, save me. I believe. I repent. You're the Lord. Fill me with your spirit. I will follow you. Amen. And if you pray that prayer and you meant it, Brother, sister, you are saved. You're on your way to heaven. Your name's been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Heaven is celebrating this morning over you. You don't have to do another thing. If you prayed that and you meant it, He sees your belief. He sees your repentant heart. And you are gloriously saved. You don't have to do another thing. I am, however, going to ask you just to do me just a, just a personal favor. I just want to celebrate with you. Eyes are closed, heads are bowed, but when I count to three, if you prayed that prayer with me this morning, would you do me one favor? Just slip up your hand, make eye contact with me. You can put your hand right back down. I'll ask no more of you than this. But if you prayed that prayer with me this morning, would you just slip up a hand, make eye contact? One, two, three. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, buddy. Who else? Anyone else? All right. Awesome. Praise God. Praise God. Every head up every eye open. Can I give you some good news? With those commitments this morning, added to we had an amazing youth service here on Thursday night. I know, right? Seven. One of our young ladies, Maya, she's what, 15? And it was Maya, right? Maya, I was looking for this morning, I didn't see her. Maya wanted to preach. And so Pastor Zach worked with her and this little 15-year-old girl got up and preached her heart out. Gave an invitation. Seven students accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior at the end of that. Praise God. So with today, that's nine people this week that have come into God's kingdom. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Whew, I got choke bumps on me. Yeah, yeah, you did too? Yeah. And mine are easier to see because it makes it look like my hair's growing. It's just chill bumps up there. <laughs> hey, listen, if you're willing and able, stand with me. We have something to celebrate today. Every time, listen, if there's a party in heaven, there can be a party here. And so I'm going to pray. We're going to give this morning in our offering. If you'd like to give uh, to missions, you are inspired to give. Uh, it's easy to do that. If you give by, by uh, check or cash, just write on the envelope, missions, it will get there and it'll get to Robbie and Sarah and all the other families we support. If you give digitally, go to our website, click the give tab. And when it gets to the drop down menu, just find missions. You can give that way. We will make sure it gets there. And I know you're thinking, well, Pastor, you came to us last week and we're kind of pretty transparent about where we are financially, operationally. Yes. Well, should we still be giving the missions? Are you kidding? Of course. We're not cutting back on our giving to missions because we're going through some bumpy stuff financially. That's his kingdom. We're going to keep giving. We're going to keep seeing his kingdom expand and the Lord will figure the rest out along with us. We're going to do our part. He's going to do his part. So we're going to pray over that today. The team is going to lead us in a worship song. If you'd like prayer, our prayer team will be here. If you'd like to receive communion, we have elements here. You can come down and help yourself. Don't chug the whole thing. Just take one. Okay. <laughs> Just take one. Um, and then when we've sung through the song, Pastor James will dismiss us. God, 
Nine more people added to your kingdom. You're so good. You are doing a wonderful thing in this community and in this church. Father, help us as a church to come alongside people, make a decision, and really disciple them. Help them grow in their spiritual journey so that they can keep growing strong in your kingdom. We will always make more space around the table. We will set up more chairs. We will make more space. We've got a nursery ready to open next week. We've got all kinds of things moving forward. God, we're just so thankful that today nine people have have entered your kingdom this week because of the ministry of this church combined with everything you're doing around the world. Lord, I pray your anointing and your power and your spirit upon those who have just made decisions. We know the enemy loves to to try and make us doubt decisions that we've made. I pray for victory and overcoming in the lives of those people who have made the decisions. Lord, we look forward to baptizing them in water and these next steps that they're walking through. We pray your mighty blessing on Robbie and Sarah and on their family, on their kids. Lord, will you have them leave this place completely encouraged today, knowing that they, if there was any ounce of any hesitation in their mind about your guidance for their lives, that you've just confirmed over and over and over again your goodness. And Father, once again, we submit our plans. We lay them down before your feet. We're not asking you to co-sign our plans. We want you to draw them up and pass them on to us so we can follow you specifically. We love you, Jesus. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.